All right. Well, David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, regular contributor to NPR's All Things Considered. Thank you so much for joining us here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, you've been to Asheville before a few times, you I've mentioned? I've been here a few times. I took my son on a college visit here, uh, and I have some dear friends who live here. Okay, well, great, great. And uh, you'll be at UNC Asheville at the Kimmel Arena tonight at 7 o'clock for uh, a talk. And I think there are some tickets still available for that, just a handful of tickets. I'm very sorry to hear that. <laughs> Do you know yet what you're going to be talking about to the students? No, total jazz. I'm just going to riff. No, <laughs> just gonna I, riff I, it. I'm uh, going to talk a little about where we are as a country. Uh, you know, it's a depressing time, but I'm going to focus on student life. You know, uh, aside from the national challenges, students face a unique set of challenges. I think they they go to uh, they've been raised in a childhood that's probably the most uh, organized and supervised childhood in human history, and then they get out of college and they're 21, 22, and suddenly they're in the least supervised era in human history. It's tough to be in your 20s, so I may try to have them look forward to. What comes next and how to think about that? Yeah, and you think back to your time in Chicago when you were in school? Yeah, I was sort of lucky. When I got out of school, I felt like there were like six jobs. You could become a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer. Now there are six million jobs. And when I got out of college, you know, it was not unusual for people to get married at 25, 24. Uh, and now people are getting married at 32, 33. I, I try to talk to my own students uh, where I teach about marriage. And they say, I'm just not interested. Like marriage is a box that'll come in the mail when I'm 35. I don't really need to think about it. And so there's just this huge long period in the 20s when even the processes you used to think in your, t in your younger years, which is all station to station, how do I get to the next test, the next admissions process, suddenly you're out in the open world and there's no more stations, and you got to set your own criteria to determine where your life is headed. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the direction of the country, because obviously that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, so we've had recent reports from your employer, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others, laying out in pretty chilling detail the links that administration officials are having to go to sort of rein in Donald Trump, kind of keep him from making rash decisions. You know, we have comments from Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee basically saying that these three guys in the White House, Rex Tillerson, James Mattis, and John Kelly, are basically keeping us from chaos and perhaps preventing us from a World War III. Um, how worried are you about the stability of President Donald Trump? I'm pretty worried. I've spoken to people in the White House, and uh, they tell me to be worried, so <laughs> I take their word for it. And especially about North Korea, uh, it can, it's more dangerous uh, than even we know, I think. And so, you know, the world is full of history where things spun out of control even when everybody was a rational actor. World War I was the famous example. And we now have two people, Donald Trump and the North Korean leadership regime, which are pretty much going at each other, you know, f uh, with full bore. And it's so easy for that to lead to miscalculation. And I think, you know, Secretary Mattis and Secretary uh, Tillerson are more or less trying to do their best, uh, but they don't fully control their president, obviously. They do what he says. And I'm not sure they have a coherent strategy. The North Koreans really want a nuclear weapon, I expect, or the delivery systems for the nuclear weapon. We really want to prevent them. We're not willing to accept that they're going to have it. And so that just puts us on, on a collision course. Now, of course, Donald Trump is denying all of these stories and saying that it's fake news. And you said that you've spoken to people in the White House. These are credible sources that you've spoken to, numerous sources? Yes, who are yeah. close to him. And, and 
and um, it's not fake news. You know, some of things may be exaggerated. Sometimes we may have a, a picture of chaos that doesn't really exist because the press will pick up a few things that are chaotic and then pretend that's the whole reality. I think there's some exaggeration. It's possible to get the idea that it's just nursery school in there. But it's also true that the president's not particularly curious. Uh, he doesn't know much about most of the issues he's dealing with. And uh, he's prone to very rash and very decisive judgments about things he's not expert upon. So now Trump is taking aim at the media. This is not new, of course, but, you know, he calls your employer the failing New York Times quite often on Twitter. The latest target is NBC News for reporting comments. And, you know, he denies and denied by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson that he had called Trump a moron and that Trump had wanted to expand our nuclear arsenal tenfold. Trump's calling these lies by the fake news media. Now he's going further. He's tweeting about revoking broadcast licenses for news sites that post what he deems to be fake news. And to me, I'm a young guy, but this seems like uncharted territory. Is it? And is this a danger to a free press? Yeah, we're so deep into uncharted territory. I still regard them... First of all, most of the reports have been pr very much vindicated. This has actually been a period where a lot of the scoops we've had about the Trump White House have been very much vindicated when the fa full facts have been known. So it's not like there's a lot of fake news out there. Second, uh, you know, I regard him as sort of a cultural showman who wants to take every fracture in the American body politic and just stick a hot wounding knife in there and just tear it apart. And so will he actually try to revoke NBC's license? He really can't do that. The First Amendment is pretty clear on this. Uh, but I do think he's trying to, if not do something politically or governmentally, do something culturally just to divide uh, and to divide the news media or the people who favor the news media from those who hate them. And that he's successfully doing it. And along all sorts of realms, among urban, rural, among black, white, uh, among media, non-media, Democrat, Republican, he's taking every divide we have and he's just ripping it wider. Yeah, like the kneeling in the NFL. Right. And I must say, you know, I, he's not stupid in the fights he picks. He's he's clever. He he picks fights that his base is going to be with him, uh, and he may even get a majority on some of these issues. So you think that Donald Trump is planning this? You know, he's 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 ca making calculated moves. You don't think that he's just rash and firing at the hip uh, every time he gets upset about something? Well, he's both. Uh, he's a marketing guy. He has an instinctive sense of where his people are and what issues are going to uh, rally his people around him and divide his people from the others. Uh, kneeling on the flag uh, was an issue that he thought he could do pretty well with, and he sort of has done well. The NFL is now sort of caved into him. Uh, go, switching to the tearing down of the Confederate statues after Charlottesville uh, was something he thought he could do well with his people. And so he shifts to the ground on which he wants to have the fight. And I don't know if it's a thought through strategy, but his instincts are politically uh, pretty good. What is it like working at the Times when you guys are pretty often a target of jabs, insults, by the president of the United States, uh, the failing New York Times comments. What's you know, it we, like? We have, we've had, in the past year, we've had more new subscribers uh, to our online than we had in the previous two or three years combined. So, you know, one of our journalists tweeted out, you know, the failing New York Times, we even fail at failing because we're not failing. <laughs> we're doing fine. And I just think it's, it's actually an exciting time. Uh, the reporters in my bureau, in the Washington Bureau, are getting scoop after scoop. Uh, often late in the day, just these bombshells. And then for those of on the, the op-edge page, um, the guy's given me a reason to live. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, 
you know, my response to Trump in general is that uh, he's the wrong answer to the right question, that the social forces that drove him are real questions and people have real concerns with their lives, which we have to understand. And he's exploited them in a bad way. But understanding the underlying forces, understanding him. And then to me now, the big question is, I'm sort of sick of talking, thinking about Donald Trump's psychology. I sort of think I get it. But what comes next? What's the anti-Trump? What's the post-Trump? That's a very open question. That's a, a really interesting subject for anybody who does this for a living. And how many years have you been with The Times? I've been there since uh, uh, 13 years. So 13. it's about 100 columns um, a year. So I've written 1,300 columns, all wow. of them perfectly sterling gems. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> Award winners, I'm sure, every one of them. So you were a reporter and editorial page editor at the Wall Street Journal, also for nine years, worked for the Weekly Standard National Review. Uh, so you have ties to so many venerated news organizations. But now we live in this period where people can get their news from anywhere. And you hear a lot of people sourcing things like Drudge Report, Infowars, Breitbart, and it seems like there's no bridging that divide. And I wonder, because you've worked at these newspapers for so long, if you can just talk about the difference between the New York Times and a Breitbart, what's the difference between those reporters in terms of accountability, you know, fact-checking, sort of things like yeah. that? You know, if... I used to, back when blogging was big, it sort of faded. I would read a blog, and it seemed plausible what I was reading about some analysis of the White House. And then the blogger would say, well, I've got to sign off now. I'm going off to junior high. And I realized I'm talking about, I'm reading a 12-year-old. Uh, and so the difference is that if somebody in my position says, I think so-and-so is thinking this, I'm not speculating about that. It's because they are actually told me off the record that's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And so there's, we just ha are doing interviews all the time. And so there's a level of um, just actual awareness rather than speculation about what's actually going on. Uh, and it's not because we're great people, but if you work in the New York Times, you have access. Mm -hmm. And that's even true in the Trump White House. Uh, and so you have access. You sort of know what you're talking about a little more. And I would say, you know, a lot of people hate the New York Times for being super liberal. Our audience is, you know, it's New York. Uh, that's our home base. And so it's more liberal than the country. But I would say for my colleagues, their commitment is to the craft of journalism. And that's true, by the way, at NPR. I was on election nights at NPR for probably six or seven election nights. Mm -hmm. And I never heard celebration or crying. People were straight up just doing the job of reporting on the election night. And so it's it's just not that ideological and atmosphere at either of these institutions. So basically the, the perspective that people get is a, a false one, is what you would say. Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I think at the time sometimes we have unconscious biases, cultural biases, because we are based in big cities. And so there are parts of the country we don't know well as well as, well as we know Park Slope and Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. But uh, but the conscious biases are are much rarer. And, of course, you would be considered a conservative columnist for the New York Times, which I guess a lot of people would consider that moderate or, you know, centrist. I guess times have changed in that way. But I, I'm sure you probably don't love labels, but how would you describe yourself? Yeah. I accept the conservative label. Yeah. Uh, my heroes are Edmund Burke, who's the father of conservatism, and, and Alexander Hamilton, who was pretty friendly to capitalism. Uh, but, you know, conservatism has changed. So I look at Breitbart. Uh, and the populism of Steve Bannon, I don't regard that as conservative at all. I regard that as reactionary. Uh, but nonetheless, that's where the center of, quote, conservatism is going. And so I'm a conservative, but not the kind that seems to be dominant at the moment. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my next question. Uh, 
you know, Luther Strange, uh, of course, lost his uh, election to Roy Moore, who was backed by Steve Bannon. And um, it was a very strange election, of course, because Donald Trump is backing Luther Strange kind of tepidly. But I guess the question is, that's probably impossible to answer, but what is the Republican Party now? Is it the Steve Bannon Party, the Trump Party? Is it the Mitch McConnell Party? None or all? Uh, certainly not the Mitch McConnell Party. He's a very unpopular figure in Republican ranks. It's becoming more of the Bannon Party until I see, you know, one of the things Bannon has going for him, he and the populace have a very coherent story to tell about what's gone wrong with the global economy, immigration, all the rest. Uh, and they tell it with great conviction. They believe in it. And the Republican so-called establishment has no great story to tell. Uh, and they're too afraid to actually stand up to the populists. And they just try to avoid being the next target. But it turns out they're all going to be the next target. And, and Bannon's going to go after a whole series of Republican senators who are up for re-election this time. I think everybody except Ted Cruz in Texas, probably. And he won't knock off most of them, but he'll knock off a couple. Mm-hmm. And he only needs to knock off a couple to put the fear of God into all of them. And right. so if you, you know, the power of conviction really matters. I mean, the, the Bolsheviks in 1917 in Russia, they were not a majority. They, their name meant minority. And they won because they had power of conviction. And that's where the power of conviction is in the Republican Party right now. Well, you know, columns like yours and many of your colleagues, uh, I'm thinking one, uh, uh, you know, Eugene Robinson of The Washington Post was just talking about how he thinks Republicans now need to kind of work to contain Donald Trump. Others are writing about the 25th Amendment, cabinet members voting Trump out of office. Of course, others are talking about impeachment. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I don't know if the Twenty Fifth Amendment's going to be invoked. I'm, I, my first, when he first won, I didn't think he'd last a year, and now that's not looking so good. I, I don't see how he stays in office given the deterioration, but I don't see how he's removed either. And so, I right now I assume he'll be here four years. Um, I, you know, the the core issue is that as Steve Bannon says. He's just one chapter. Trump is just one chapter in this deal. And Pat Buchanan was a chapter. Sarah Palin's a chapter. Trump is a chapter. Roy Moore's a chapter. And he sees this as a much bigger movement. And I think he's right about that. And so uh, taking the people who really are powering this movement, who, as I say, have, have got economic grievances that are right, who feel they're losing the society that they love, who feel invisible and, and insulted by a lot of us on the coasts, answering their Concerns is the way to to so-called train the swamp, drain the populist swamp. And uh, so get, developing a strategy to do that is, seems to be the key. Well, you wrote a column recently. This one was called The Philosophical Assault on Trumpism. And you were talking about how the efforts so far to uh, defeat Trump in any kind of way have been futile in, in, in some ways. Um, I think the gist of what you were writing about is some of it may have gone over my head, but I think you were getting at basically that there needs to be this philosophical leader that comes along that that can take Trump on. And my question is, were the people that Trump defeated in the last election from the right and the left, like your Marco Rubio's, Jeb Bush's and Hillary Clinton, of course, and, and Bernie, did they not have that gravitas or whatever it was that you were getting at. Yeah, they didn't have a story. You know, Trump has a story that the, there's this core of America and the middle America. Those are the good, sensible people. And they're being attacked by outsiders. They're being attacked by elites that are too stupid to run the country, by foreigners, by Islamic radicals. And so we need to just build some walls to protect the good people. Mm-hmm. And that's a story. It's not a traditionally American story, but it's a story. Uh, and my point in that column was that we used to have a story of the frontier, 
that we're people that are diverse people always conquering the frontier, whether it's the physical frontier or the technological frontier, and that we should be pointing toward the future and not toward the past. And so just tell the story of the frontier. And I think you tap into a lot of things that people love about this country, but I just love to see somebody tell a story. The problem with the Republicans is a lot of the establishment Republicans are still telling Ronald Reagan's story about free market and get rid of government. And, you know, the American people are feeling pretty insecure these days. Mm. And getting government out of their lives is not their core problem anymore. It's not 1981. And so... Addressing those insecurities is really the core issue, and the Republican Party hasn't moved to figure out how to do that. Okay. Uh, another one of your columns uh, that you wrote recently about uh, in response to the tragedy in Las Vegas, I don't want to challenge you on this one just a little bit. You were talking about how basically this phenomenon where in, where in, when we have these mass shootings, a lot of state legislatures around the country will actually loosen gun laws, and so what, kind of the opposite of what you might think would happen and you said in there, and I'll quote you, so why are lawmakers responding to mass killings by loosening gun laws? And you said the wrong answer is that the NRA is this maliciously powerful force that controls legislators through campaign dollars. In fact, the NRA spends a minuscule amount on campaign contributions compared with the vast oceans of dough washing through our politics. So we had some recent reporting here. Um, WFAE in Charlotte had reported that in North Carolina, the NRA contributed $11 million to our two Republican senators, Richard Burr and Tom Tillis, through campaign contributions and also attack ads uh, attacking the other party. And in some reports that I've read, uh, people were talking about that even the influence of the NRA is not even so much about the money. It's their power to uh, mobilize people and get them to the polls. So my question for you is, do you really think the NRA is um, – more of an insignificant factor in the lack of these gun control laws? Uh, well, let, let's make a distinction here. I think they're not super significant in terms of the money. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't the North Carolina numbers I don't know, but nationally, compared to the, the amount of money the Koch brothers throw out there, there's just billions and billions of dollars being thrown in. Yeah. And relative to that, the NRA money is not big. The NRA membership is big. And so I think I pointed out in that column a fact I did not know that there are more gun clubs and gun shows in this country than there are McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And so one out of every four households in America has a gun. And so that's a lot of people. And so they've got a lot of members. And so if the power of the NRA comes from the membership uh, and from the way they've frankly built relationships through, through the members by getting people together at gun clubs and things like that, because, and, and from the power of culture. Uh, as a lot of people have by now noted, it, it's not really about guns. It's about a lot of people feeling their, their culture is being assaulted and that guns are part of their culture. It's what people like me have, they sell, and people like them, those people, they don't have guns. Mm -hmm. And so this is just a symbol of my ability, my freedom, my ability to defend my family in a dangerous world, and people who are unlike me are trying to tell me how to live. Do you think money matters in politics anymore? Because we have so many examples with the, the race in Alabama, the special election in Georgia, and I believe, I could be wrong, but I think Hillary Clinton vastly outspent Donald mm -hmm. Trump uh, they all lost. Does money make a difference anymore? Yeah, the, I think the political science is very clear on this. Money makes a difference to get you up to the threshold where you're known by the voters. Uh, but after you, after that, uh, then it's all wasted. I see. Uh, and the people who are spending, you know, the, the ninth and tenth ad you see on a night on TV, that's making no difference. That's just making the rebel rebel bounce. So you got to raise some money. But money does not matter as much as the politicians think it does, and some of the observers think it does. It just there's no measurable. Uh, people uh, 
did studies on suppose one candidate doubled their spending it might increase their vote total by 0.5%. So that's not nothing, but it's not big. And so what what matters is more to the door-to-door stuff, more to the message, uh, especially the more national you get. The more local money matters a little more. Okay. What do you think the importance of public radio is, you know, news media, specifically NPR and public radio stations like this, and what is our responsibility? Yeah, well, you know, to me, the the big problem in the society is social fragmentation, that we're not listening to each other. And one of the great things about public radio is whether you're driving to work or driving home or just sitting around the house, uh, you hear people unlike yourselves, and you have calm, normal, rational discussions. And if we want the voice of reason to have some say in American life, then it seems to me NPR and public radio are uh, the key factors in keeping that alive. All right. Well, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, NPR contributor, frequent NPR contributor, thank you so much. Thank you.